0: Welcome to Redemption, my name is Justin and I'm one of the pastors here and it's uh, good to be here with you. Uh, We will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, so if you want to turn there, I recommend you do so now. If you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand one of the guys will bring you a Bible. If you uh, don't own a Bible, please keep this one, put your name in it and bring it every week. If you do own a Bible and you just need to borrow one, uh, then go ahead and give it back on your way out on the cart there. We are several weeks into our series through First Thessalonians. If you're new, we tend to go through books of the Bible. It's kind of our bread and butter, and, and we like it that way. And uh, I think we're four weeks into... 1 Thessalonians. And we're in kind of a transition passage here in terms of how the uh, how the book is structured. And uh, you can tell that by Paul's first word there in chapter 4. He says, finally. That doesn't necessarily mean it's his last thing he's going to say, but it definitely means there's a transition here. And so the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, if you remember, is almost a narrative. It's not straight narrative like the Gospels, but it's it's basically Paul going back and, and talking about his relationship with the Thessalonians. So talks about their first there and how that all went, and talks about the faith and the good report of faith that they've heard um, about the Thessalonians, their, their uh, interaction with Timothy and Timothy's report back to them, um, the kind of ministry Paul and uh, and Silas and Timothy did there. They, he just kind of recaps the whole thing, and now in chapter four, finally gets to some instructions. So he's going to tell them two things: um, one this week and one next week, and then get into the coming of Christ, which will kind of be the focus of our Advent season. So. Um, with that in mind, we will do First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. As you heard uh, Pastor Jason read, uh, the topic tonight, kind of broadly, is sexual immorality, which I was thinking is perfect for the Christmas season. Um, <laughs> nothing like a Christmas sex talk uh, to just get us right into the season. So, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Let's talk about sex. All right. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now, there's three things in that first verse that I want to point out that will kind of frame our whole conversation tonight. So the first thing is that he says that you received from us. Um, how you ought to live. Now, I, I want to I frame not just this passage, but kind of all of your New Testament in, in a way that may be helpful for some of you. Um, as, we, as we look through the first books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, they tell and retell the story of Jesus' life and his teaching, his miracles, his example, his leadership, all the things that Jesus accomplished, kind of climaxing at um, the cross, that being kind of the, the, uh, the swivel on which 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 the New Testament moves. So um, everything that Jesus talks about, everything that leads up to the cross, Jesus primarily is talking about discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, um, and the kingdom of God, right? And so he's kind of foretelling the cross and and foretelling what's going to happen and where this story is going. And the cross kind of stands in the middle, and then everything afterwards, the epistles, are largely a comment on the implications of the cross. So um, everything before the cross is pointing towards it, talking about kingdom. And disciple. Everything afterwards is going okay. Here are the implications of the cross, and here is how you ought to live, or in other words, how you ought to be a disciple of Jesus in light of what he accomplished at the cross. So when Paul says, "Hey, we already told you how you ought to live," um, he's saying we, we've already discipled you. We've already taught you what it means to follow Jesus. So after the cross, after the resurrection, Jesus gave his disciples what we know as the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So in that statement, we have um, what is the sending impetus of the Christian church to go and make disciples, to baptize them into new life, and then to teach them how to live, teach them um, all of the things that God commanded for for them not only just to know it, but actually to observe it, to live it out, to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay? So when you read through the New Testament epistles, we should read with that lens of Paul, Peter, John, whomever, James, is teaching us what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, taking what Jesus taught, the implications of the cross um, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and teaching us, what does it mean? For those of us who go, yeah, I'm with Jesus, Jesus died to save my sins, I believe that, I believe that what, what happened to the cross really happened historically, but also has meaning for my life, that, that comes with um, the idea that Jesus is not just our Savior gets us out of sin, but is our leader, our King, our Lord, our Master, and we follow Him as His disciples. Okay, So that kind of frames not only the New Testament, but it certainly frames um, our passage tonight as really Paul more broadly is talking about discipleship and using sexual immorality as an example of, of how we do discipleship different, how we do life different as disciples of Jesus. So he says, you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God. This is the second thing I wanted to point out to you, because we talk a lot here, as as churches should, we talk a lot about how salvation has come as as a gift from God, as grace through faith. Right? Um, This is Ephesians 2, it says over and over, Paul goes over and over and over to say, listen, you didn't do it, it's a gift from God, you didn't earn it, No, no good works, no one can boast, God did it. Right? and So it can be confusing for us to then read um, that we can do things and ought to do things that please God, um, because what's implied is if we don't do those things, we don't please God. Okay? The best way I can explain this is if you are a parent, you get this. Right? How many of you are not parents? Because you have no clue what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> all right? Here, here, here's, here's the best way I can explain this. I have two kids. I love them very much. I have a three-year-old named Lily and a four-month-old named Cole. I love them very much. I love them unconditionally. I love them without hesitation. I love them when they're good. I love them when they're bad. I love them when they're clean and cute. I love them when they're spitting up Brussels sprouts with cheese sauce on me last night. I love it when I'm holding her over the sink trying to get all of the Brussels sprouts out of her mouth. I love her very much. And occasionally, I also like them. Okay, and there's a difference. There is a significant difference when she is spitting up, not throwing up because she's sick, spitting up because she doesn't like them, Brussels sprouts, which she then later ravenously ate. Don't get me started. Um, I I don't like her. Okay, I, I love her, but I have no positive feelings towards her whatsoever. Right? Just it, if you're not a parent, you're going, "Oh, that's so harsh." If you're a parent, you go, "Yeah, I hate my kids." but we still love them we still love them unconditionally, but we don't like them many times. Now, there are moments where we like them very much, and it pleases us to be their parents. So Saturday morning, my wife went and ran some errands, and I got a chance to just hang out with um, my kids, just the two of them, and that's always really fun and frightening. And, and Lily has this thing where the more I'm around, the more she likes me, the more clingy she gets. It's weird, because most people, it's the opposite with me, right? So um, the, she, she gets super clingy and so Saturday morning we had just been in Portland together f- as a family for a week and um, and so we got a chance to spend some time Saturday morning and she goes daddy daddy I have a surprise for you and she's all about surprises these days and they're usually terrible but she she says <laughs> come to the playroom with me. I want to show you your surprise. I'm like, all right. So I go in the playroom. I've got the baby. And she shows me this piece of paper laid out on her table with a bunch of crayon uh, drawn on there. And she goes, I got you. I made you this. It's your surprise. Now, I know that she made that a month ago with two of her little friends. I'm going, that's crap. That, that's not for me. You, there's no way that was for me, but I'm going, okay, yeah, thanks, right? So I, I tell her, oh, thank you for that present, and I pick her up, and I give her a hug, and I said, you're the best hugger, and I put her down, and and she then proceeded to sing a song, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best colorer in the world, and the best hugger, too. So <laughs> if nothing else, we're raising a confident child, and so so it's in those moments, and, and moments like the other day when she just randomly out of nowhere said, Daddy, you're the best daddy ever. And I go, oh, can I get you some candy? Do you, do you need horses, a palace maybe? What can I do for you, right? It's those moments, and moments when she obeys without um, giving me attitude, that I like her, and she pleases me and I have great affection for her um, in a a temporal, not in an ultimate sense, but in in the moment, it pleases me when she does what I want her to do. This is essentially what what Paul's talking about here. That God loves us unconditionally. God loves us not because you're great, but because he's great. God loves you, and that doesn't change. I've said this a hundred times over the last seven years. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. God has fully demonstrated his love for you in that he sent his son to die for you. There's no more he can do. There's no more he would do. He has fully demonstrated his love for you already. Now, in the midst of that, there are ways that we can please and honor our God by obeying him. But it, but it even goes a step deeper than that from, from just a random God said do this and so I'm gonna obey him and that makes God happy. But there are all kinds of moments with my daughter. Um, she likes to help my wife uh, cook uh, cook dinner or lunch, or whatever it is, so she gets her little stool and sets it up and stands by the counter and there's all kinds of times when she gets near the stove and I have to take her down and say, Lily, you can't stand up by the stove, it's hot, it'll burn you and she gets all mad and she doesn't understand, she cries and I said, listen. And so I, I still am convinced that I can rationalize with my three-year-old. I know, I'm a fool, but I, I still try. And so I pick her up, I take her out of the room, I pick her up and I look, I always make her look me in the eye and I say, Lily, do you know that daddy loves you? Yes. Do you know that mommy loves you? Yes. Do you know that we always want to protect you and keep you safe? Yes, right, she's already rolling her eyes at me. And, and I said, when we tell you not to do things, it's because we know it'll hurt you. When you stand by the stove and it's hot, it'll burn you, and your, your hand could melt off, okay? And we don't want that. That'll be harder for you to get scholarships. And so we don't, we don't want you to do that, okay? And we care for you. And there's this moment where I think, oh yeah, she's getting this, she's getting this. She goes, oh, there's my pink shoe. And I go, oh, she got it. I'm pretty sure she got that, right? So there is a sense in which... Um, when we tell our kids to do things, many times, most of the time I would hope, um, we do so because it's for their good. And they don't, they don't believe us Even though we want them to think, we want to think that they are rational beings, we cannot explain to them um, that we love them and we're looking out for them and this is for their good, they want their way. And I have confidence at times that eventually, by 40, she'll figure that out, Um, but then I come to to work and my my job is pastor and i tell people god says don't do these things because it will hurt you and it's bad and your hand will melt off and you guys and we say oh but i want to don't tell me what to do with my body don't tell me what to do with my life i'm gonna do it my way and i'm going you'll melt your hand off god says no it's going to hurt you and then i lose all hope for humanity (laughs) because still we're not rational Right. So when when Paul says, um, "I've told you the th- ways you ought to live and to please God," that's what he's saying. There is a way that is best. There is a way that is going to bring the fullest amount of satisfaction and joy and peace that God promises, and it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of being a disciple of Jesus. So God goes. Do this and don't do that and avoid this and pursue this because these are the good things. These are the, this is the way I intended you to be human. Okay, so I, I could say it this way. Being a disciple of Jesus is the best and most full way to be a human. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that we are God's workmanship, his craftsmanship. Some, some translations would say his artistry. We are his production, his, his, the, the beautiful things that he has created. It says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he created beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God made us specifically for a specific world to be used in a specific way that is his ideal. And that's all of discipleship. We'll get a particular implication of this, particular example of this, but that's, but that's all of life, okay? So that's, that's, that's what he tells us. The last thing I wanted to point out to you is this. He says, how, how you ought to live and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. I was thinking about this um, this week in light of that, um, that little phrase there, do so more and more, and I thought this is pretty unique. Most of when Paul is addressing issues um, with church, especially things like sexual immorality, it's usually um, examples like 1 Corinthians where he says there's a guy in your church sleeping with his dad's wife and you all approve of it and think you're open-minded and cool. So that's, that's disgusting and wrong and gross and sinful. Usually when, when Paul comes, on, on, um, comes hard to, on, on his listeners on sexual morality or other sins, he says, listen, there, there's serious sin, and, and you need to repent of that sin. What's interesting about this passage is that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, you're doing this. You're living it. You guys are great disciples. I mean, if if at this point in chapter four, Paul were to do an about-face and go, yeah, but you guys are really messing these things up, it it would almost undermine the first three chapters where Paul over and over and over, almost ad nauseum goes, you guys are great. We love you guys. Everyone knows about your faith. You guys are awesome. Yay, Thessalonians. So in in chapter four, he goes, listen, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. It got me thinking. I wonder how many people in our church consider themselves Christian enough. I I, I wonder how many of us would say, yeah, I'm moral enough. I I go to church enough. I read my Bible enough. I pray enough. I'm in community enough. I I have accountability enough. I pursue Christ enough. And have just decided that they're going to settle with where they're at. I'm good enough to not get me in trouble. If there was a Christian bell curve, I'd at least be in the 60th percentile. I'm above average Christian enough. And we kind of think about our faith as, as an arrival at a certain place rather than a trajectory towards eternity. And I, and I thought to myself on Friday evening around midnight, I thought to myself, you know what? Nobody understands mediocrity like I do. Here's why for at least the last 25 years of my life I've been an ASU football fan. <laughs> and we have dealt with mediocrity for 25 years. We've had occasional highs, Rose Bowl twice, occasional nine win seasons when we get crazy, but largely we have been a 7 and 5, 6 and 6 team. We've never been terrible typically, never had any winless seasons at least not in my lifetime, but we are consistently average. It's painful. Started the season so good, six and two, flying high, excited. Then we lost four in a row, six and six. We'll go to a bowl, but we'll lose. <laughs> I will never cease to be an ASU football fan, right? I, I've I've been at it this long. I, I will never stop being an ASU football fan. But it, I realized as I stood there, as the clock wound down on our embarrassing defeat to Cal, I thought something's going to have to change. Somebody's going to have to make a choice to make this, to make this program better. Someone's we're, we're going to have, someone's gonna have to sacrifice. Someone's going to have to invest more, recruit better. So, something's going to have to change to, to take that next step, to, to get better as, as a program. Uh, th- that's exactly what Paul is calling us to do. He's going, I, I get it. You're six and six. Nice work. You're bowl eligible. Barely, right? Nice work, guys. You you go to the craft fight hunger bowl. How <laughs> embarrassing is that. <laughs> I, I really do love ASU football so much. That's why there's more angst than usual. But couldn't we do something more? Shouldn't we be better? Shouldn't we be pursuing more and more and more and more and more? That's what Paul calls us to. He goes, you're, you're doing this. You, you know what, how you ought to live and how to please God, just as you are doing. But he says, we ask and urge you to do more and more and more. Do so more. Pursue God more. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Be in community more. Serve your community more. More. Have a trajectory of, of eternity, of Christ. Rather than an arrival of, I'm good enough. I'm Christian enough. And, and I think for us, that, that frames the rest of what Paul's going to call us to do. because He's going to give us a specific example, but it's basically in light of verse 1. So verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Let me just make a quick point on that. There is no question I've had more in the last 10 years of ministry than what, does, what is God's will for my life? Paul just answered your question. The will for your li- will of God. I speak authoritatively about the specific will of God for your life right now. So listen, write this down. Sanctification, which is just a fancy Bible word for being like Jesus. Sanctification is the lifelong process of being shaped and honed and sanded and changed into the likeness of Christ. Paul says the same thing in Romans eight twenty nine, that we've been chosen so that we will be conformed to the likeness of his son that that is your end be like Jesus be a disciple of Jesus pursue more and more and more being a disciple of Jesus and in the midst of it do whatever you want meaning do whatever job you want to do but pursue Jesus Go to whatever school. You can be a disciple of Jesus at any school in the country except U of A. There is no other, no other situation. It is impossible to be a disciple there. Otherwise, anywhere. I don't care if you want to be a CPA. I don't care if you want to be a barista. I don't care if you want to be unemployed. I don't care. I care that you follow Jesus. That's the will of God for your life. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus please stop waiting for a burning bush. Please stop waiting for handwriting on the wall. Please stop. Do you know how a burning bush got in the Bible? Somebody went, hey, did you hear what happened to Moses? God spoke to him in a burning bush. And they're like, whoa, that's crazy. Someone should write that down, because that's crazy. That's crazy. Stop waiting for the crazy stuff. That's why it's in the Bible. The boring stuff that happened to every other Jew isn't in the Bible. <laughs> you just <laughs> <laughs> follow Jesus and just make choices, make decisions. Follow Jesus in the midst of it, no matter what you do, okay? Will of God, your sanctification. For example, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The word that Paul uses there in the Greek for sexual immorality is is the word porneia. Pornea is just kind of this junk drawer term for sexual immorality. It's sometimes translated as adultery, sometimes fornication, depending on the context, right? It's just this generic term for anything that falls short of the way God designed sex to work, right? The the purposes that when God created and formed and gave purpose to human beings and, and the sexual union of them, That anything that that falls short of that, anything that rebels against that, anything that doesn't fully value it the way God values it kind of is assumed in this sexual MRI, this porn ant. And and I I feel like I don't have to tell you again and again and again how sexualized our culture is. I think you get that. I don't think I need to tell you over and over and over that the porn industry brings in more money than Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL combined every year. I I don't have to tell you that. You just look around. Anyone over the age of 60 could go, I have seen a massive change in my lifetime. Things that weren't even, weren't even talked about by, by appropriate people are, are now on network television on commercials. I mean, there's just been a massive shift in sexuality in our culture. Whether, whether you think that's good or bad, there's no denying that there has been a massive shift in, in the, the public perception uh, of sexuality, how it's communicated, how it's thought about, it, it has become far more lax than the last 50 years. Okay, so Paul's writing to a people that are living in a Roman culture have been saved and are now still in the midst of that Roman culture that is a hyper-sexualized culture, but but are trying to live as as called-out people, as holy people, trying to live as disciples of Jesus in a sexualized culture. So what Paul writes to them is is 100% appropriate for us. And I'll just say this. The Bible's sexual ethics are wildly unpopular today. Wildly unpopular. Most people, when they think about what the Bible teaches on sexual ethics—just go. It's outdated. It's old-fashioned. It's stupid. No one, no one actually thinks that way anymore. How, how could you? How could you actually teach that as authoritative and meaningful? Right. So there, there's been these these massive shifts, and yet this anchor throughout the the last two thousand years has been a very consistent and generous and beautiful understanding of human sexuality. I mean, you read Ephesians chapter 5, and it's this incredibly complex picture of God's relationship with his people and a husband's relationship with his wife. And Paul literally just weaves, goes back and forth between these two metaphors to tie them together. It says the same way God pursues his church, they are married together, sealed by um, Christ's blood shed on the cross. So we see the same thing in a husband pursuing his wife, coming into covenant relationship, sealing that marriage, sealing that covenant through sex. that's, That's the picture we get. And Paul weaves that back and forth. He goes, this is a great mystery. I'm talking about Christ and his church, but at the same time, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, this just this beautiful, freeing picture of sexuality in the Bible. And over time, as so often is the case, it gets simplified down to, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Right? And yet, we read Paul and he says, flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. That there's something, there's something unique, there's something with greater depth about sexual sin. He says, most sin is outside the body of sexual sin. You, you sin against your own self. Right? There's, there's something really profound and deep and mysterious and physical, but certainly spiritual as well in, in what God has created. Sometimes we, we think about sex as something we made up, and so therefore we get to define the rules as if God kind of looked down over creation and was like, wow, look what they're doing. Never thought of that, right? Looks fun, right? So there, there, is, there is a sense in which we, we kind of deal with it at that level, like this is our thing. How can God tell us what to do with our thing? And the result, in fact, I just read an article this week, I think in the New York Times, this woman was reflecting back on the um, sexual revolution of the 60s and kind of the liberation that it gave women to express their sexuality and um, kind of talked about how uh, before the sexual revolution it was it it was just it wasn't culturally acceptable for a woman to display or or um, in her words flaunt her sexuality and that the, the the sexual revolution kind of released women to be able to do that and she was kind of reflecting on these things and she said actually that one of her concerns now and something she sees as a kind of an emerging cultural trend as women's um, um, hireability and uh, is on the uptick in our culture that women are now getting more college degrees than men and are getting better jobs and there's just a, a really great swing and she says one thing I see in the midst of it that frightens me though that I see as a direct connection to the sexual revolution is um, now that women are able to flaunt their sexuality it's the thing that they're valued for. And so these women, some of these women, not all, certainly, but some women are, are being promoted and being valued because, in her words, um, they're, they're skinny and wear tight clothes. And their value is not in their inherent equality as image bearers of God, but their value is what they can offer their male counterparts sexually. And that's, that's a significant downside. To, to the objectification, commoditization of sexuality. When, when something so valuable, and, and we, can, we can say it's not that big a deal all we want, right? I mean, you hear that a lot, sex is not that big a deal, it's just fun, it's an experience, just try it, get better at it, and you've got to practice and multiple partners and all this stuff, and we can say all we want, hey, it's not that big a deal, um, but when the creator of it says, hey, this is a big deal, it's extremely valuable, it, it, it should be kept extremely safe, this, this is a precious thing, and we treat a precious th- thing like it's not precious, there are, the consequences are, are severe. They're severe. So when we make sex into an object or a commodity, and you, and you see it in the language, I mean, that's essentially what pornography does. And I'll use pornography in the broadest sense, right? Not, not just what you see on the internet or in a magazine or a movie or whatever the case may be, but in, in many ways, adultery, m- multiple partners sleeping around, hookup culture, all that is, is objectifying sex the same way pornography does. It's a thing to be had, it's an experience to own. Right, I mean, you hear it in the language, and I apologize for the crassness of it, but to illustrate hearing the language of, did you get some? That's objectifying that. Making it into a thing to get. And there are serious consequences for that. When we take something that God created to be, to be this ultimate expression, not only a physical relationship, but emotional and, and, and spiritual relationship, and we make it into a thing to be had, broken down into its parts. We strip it of that value and, and engage it as if it were a thing. Just a, just a tactile object to be owned, to be gathered, to, am, to be amassed. And there's consequences. Paul says very clearly. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And solemnly warned you can sound very ominous, and it should. It should. It's a big deal. So you cannot say, after this evening, you can never say again that you didn't know God thought it was a big deal. God thinks it's a big deal. So, do with that what you will, but God thinks it's a big deal. And thus, when we misuse and defile what God says is so valuable and beautiful and perfect, there are consequences commensurate with the level of value he gives it. Okay. Verse seven, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. And this is a nod to chapter 1, verse 4, when Paul says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. These languages are always paired together. Essentially, what Paul is saying is, Christ didn't die on the cross so that you can run around and do whatever you want. Christ died on the cross so that you would be empowered, be given new life, empowered to be able to live a holy life. And holy simply means set apart and different christ died on the cross so that you might be different from the world around you so that you wouldn't have to just go with the flow and go with what everybody else is doing and just be one of the herd christ died in part so that you could be separate from be holy in the midst of be set apart for some greater purpose not for impurity not not just to be one of the herd and finally It says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I'm sure there are myriad ways you can um, interact with these ideas, but um, I, I think four of them are most obvious. One is, you can say, you can look at this and go, yeah, I buy it and I'm doing good. To which I would say, you're lying, but nonetheless, do so more and more. I think very few people can look at this and go, I got no issues with this whatsoever. I never never feel tempted. I never feel drawn into this. I, I never struggle with these kinds of things. Okay, let's pretend that's true. Do so more and more. Pursue purity more and more. Just as Paul said, I ask and urge you, pursue it more and more and more. Don't give up. The fight will come. Eventually temptation will come. Be ready for it. Number two, and I alluded to this already a bit, but I think there's a fair amount of people who would look at this and go, how in the world can you take a 2,000-year-old text and apply it to us and and the sexual ethics therein? How in the world can you teach something that is so outdated? Uh, Do you even live in our culture? How can you even be walking the streets and listening to the radio and watching television and then come and say that this should be the final arbiter for what is true and false about sexual ethics? Well, if by old-fashioned you mean eternal, all right. So I think your argument is, in our world, these things just can't be true. We can't take these things seriously because we have gotten to a place culturally where, where this is just, this is a joke. Okay, so let, let's unpack that for just a minute, right? So let's unpack that um, because you, what you're saying is we as 21st century Americans have gotten to a place chronologically where we've, let's say, socially at least evolved to the point where we understand that some of these things aren't as true and so, aren't as black and white as you say they are. Fair enough. The problem is that 50 years ago, nobody would have agreed with you. Like your grandparents grew up in an era, and some of you here grew up in an era where these things were not acceptable. They were not called right. They were not called good. And you've seen massive, i said this before, if you're 60, you've seen massive change in sexual ethics in our country. So what you're saying is, Today, in this moment, this is what is ultimately and universally and inherently good and bad when it comes to sexual ethics. To, to try and make ultimate statements about this this activity is good, this version is bad, and, and try to apply that universally it is impossible. If you're if you're living in a culture that changes as rapidly as it does, and and I don't mean to be the doomsday guy, but if history is any indication, 50 years from now, it's going to be totally different. And what will you believe then? Will it be, well, 50 years ago, we had it right. And the ethics of 2011 were right. But now that we're in 2061, man, these kids are crazy. Or will you continue to move with the culture? Because the culture will continue to move. And if history is any indication, it will go two steps more liberal, one step conservative, two steps liberal, one step conservative. That's just how it works. And so at at what point can you say anything authoritative if chronologically culture is changing all the time? And and not even just chronologically. How about the fact that right now, today, just in a different part of our world, we look at the Bible and go, oh my gosh, this is so puritanical, conservative. Others look at the Bible and the the sexual ethics and gender roles specifically and we go, unbelievably liberal. How can you even say that women are equals with men? Today. So we can't say anything authoritative chronologically. We can't say anything authoritative geographically. And how about the fact that even in our city, in our time, we can't agree. So your neighbor, we don't even have to say 50 years ago, we don't even have to say across the world, we can say our neighbor disagrees. So what culture should we look at this from? What, what anchor point could we possibly come to these things with? If you're saying they're old-fashioned, old-fashioned compared to what's? If you're saying they're too conservative, conservative compared to what? Some of you probably in here struggle with the liberality of it. I don't want to hang out with you, but nonetheless, <laughs> right? So, so there, there is no anchor point at that point. When, when we try to make ultimate statements about what is right and what is wrong and what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable, if we're using a purely cultural grid. Okay, so that may be number two. Number three is, yeah, I'm sure this is true. And, and this is definitely how I want my kids to do it. But, but I mean, I, I really love my girlfriend. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure this is true, but, but we've been together a long time. I'm, I'm probably going to marry her. You know, I, I'm sure this is true, but, you know, my, my boyfriend has needs and I really love him. I'm sure this is all true, and I'm sure the Bible sexual ethics are right, but, you know, my wife is sexually unavailable to me, and so this little porn thing I do on the side, it's no big deal. I, I, I'm sure this is all true, but my husband is emotionally unavailable to me, and, and you know, I'm not actually doing anything with this guy. We just, we just kind of talk and meet up. And right, so we, we essentially look at the Scriptures and think about God as if he were an inattentive parent, as if um, God was the kind of parent that your parents may have been, maybe that you are, that goes, hey, Johnny, don't do that. Johnny, don't, if you do that one more time, okay, if you do that one more time, Johnny, one, okay, three, two, one, a half, okay, come on, five, four, Johnny's such a rascal. <laughs> Empty threats. Empty threats. Yeah, I know God says this, but I mean, he doesn't really mean it. Uh, Yeah, 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 I I know. I'll, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. I don't recommend disregarding God. God is not your bad parenting. God makes good on his promises. God cares about this very deeply. God does not make empty promises or empty threats. Lastly, number four, I think some of us are at a place where we go, this is me, I buy this, I need help. What do I do? This, this is an example, as, as all of discipleship is, but this is an example of, of a moment where it is so important for us to understand the implications of the gospel. The gospel that not only takes us from um, non-Christian to Christian, but the gospel that shapes us and changes and conforms us into the likeness of Christ. The gospel that says when we profess faith in Christ, our past is wiped clean, our sin is gone, we are set free, not, not only from the guilt that is on us, the ledger is wiped clean, but we are made new. I mean, this, this central metaphor for salvation is the death and resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ, death and resurrection of us. That's why we baptize, putting to death our old selves, bringing to new life, to experience the resurrection life. Paul calls us a new creation. That the cross not only deals with our past, but it also empowers us towards a future. So Paul says, we disregard God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That the Spirit would empower you to actually be disciples of Jesus. The kind of people that can control their own body in holiness and honor. Not like the Gentiles, not like non-believers who, whose lusts and passions control them but people that can control their bodies, control themselves, empowered by the spirit in light of the cross because God has remade us. We can now be the disciples that Jesus calls us to be. We can now live out the kingdom values that he has called us to embody. So it's these moments where we in prayer, in community, in relationship, in scripture, in worship, in preaching, can be changed and shaped and sanctified, that we can be more and more and more like Jesus, empowered by the Spirit in light of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, very simply, thank you for the gospel. The truth that the brokenness around us, the pain around us, the rebellion around us, everything that we see and know in our world doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to be true about us. It doesn't have to be true for us. Sin does not have to define our lives. We can overcome it. Not simply by discipline not simply by white-knuckling our way, but by grace. That the Holy Spirit can empower us. That because of the Holy Spirit, discipline will work. Because of the Holy Spirit, we can pray and try and bring accountability and community and influences, and all of those things will be effective because the Spirit empowers, because grace has set us free from the shackles of sin. Lord, I pray that we would live that out in those moments of temptation, in those moments of trouble, that we would actively believe, actively remember that we are new and tell ourselves, we don't have to be these people anymore. I don't have to be this person. I am not enslaved to this. By the power of the gospel, we can overcome. I pray that we would. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.